Heavenly Father, I just come before you and I am so profoundly grateful. Just how you've orchestrated this morning, Lord, and the songs that we've worshipped, Lord. Our sins are great, but your mercy is greater. It's all about you, Jesus. All of history is your story. And everything that we do, it's all about you. It all points to you. All things past, present, and future. You are all worthy of all praise and worthy of all adoration. And I pray this morning, Father, that we have a new insight of how wonderful you are. How great in all things, Lord. Change us. Make us more like you. We cannot do it on our own. Again, as the worship we worshiped, it is in you alone. The strength has to come from you. So have your way today and always. You're worthy. Amen. Okay, we're going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And let's start up with reviewing the from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. If we can pull that up, please. phone, pardon me. Okay, we're starting with the Beatitudes. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great, great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then Jesus goes on. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? For it's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he completes that part with saying, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so they can glorify your Father in heaven. So this beginning part was a declaration of how the kingdom of God manifests in the believer. 
These are the characteristics of all those who truly believe. This is what he calls of us. These attributes, priorities, inclinations, and actions reflect the type of individual who has surrendered to God and wholly lives for his kingdom and his glory. But then, Jesus transitions to something else. So let's go to Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these least commandments, or breaks one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, the kicker, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Why did Jesus seem to shift focus? What was he trying to communicate? Jesus saw a problem. He saw that the Pharisees were working in their own way to achieve salvation. They not only followed the Mosaic law, but also added 600 additional requirements to walk in purity. He also recognized that the problem is in us. We all have a misplaced sense of priorities. We see the attributes mentioned that we just shared on the Beatitudes and believe that with enough will, focus, and effort, we could do that. Every single faith, virtually every philosophical belief is predicated on our effort to achieve enlightenment or salvation. I, didn't, I wasn't raised as a Christian. I was raised as a Hindu. And they have followed the path of Bhakti, which is devotion, Janana, which is knowledge, and then Karma, which means action, not the Western idea of Karma. Muslims, I know, and friends, they pray, you know, five formal prayers a day. They fast for a month in Ramadan, and they make the Hajj, the pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Mecca as part of their path of salvation. Even those who profess Christ have holy days of obligation, declaration of mortal and venial sins that require confession, penance, and absolution for salvation. We all want a set of rules and guidelines of how to get there. Just tell me what to do. Just lay it out for me. I'll follow it. Just give me the list. We think, well, we rely on these guidelines or really the law, to achieve that goal. We think that the law and those guidelines are made for us. 
because we really think it's all about us. But God saw the law very differently. Why did he set such a specific set of laws for the Israelites? You know, when you go through the book of Leviticus, when you go through Numbers, there's a lot of list of requirements. There's a lot of do's and don'ts. There's a lot of rituals and formalities of how to prepare yourself to enter into the Holy of Holies, how the tent had to be made, how everything had to be done. It's very, very specific. Why? What does it matter? Why is God so particular? Because he is a particular God. Holiness is particular. God cares very specifically about what that looks like. So I looked up a little bit of a definition of what particular is. It's an adjective that means to single out an individual member or a specific group or class, which God did with the Israelites. In logic, it's denoting a proposition in which something is asserted of some, but of not all of the class. That means it's very specific. It's contrasted with universal. We get this idea that in John 3.16 that God loves everybody. That means that his love is absolutely universal and everybody will come before him. Yes, everybody will come before him. That part is definitely true. But his love is particular. His love is specific. It's a specific love for those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And as we shared in the songs, because there's no other way. There is no other way. It's singular. So particular can also mean something great or intense, like somebody who takes very particular care in doing something. Particular also means insisting that something should be correct or suitable in every detail. In every detail. And when you read that in the, in the Old and New Testament, that's the kind of God we have. Every specific detail is important to him. Nothing is amiss. Let me say that again. Nothing is amiss. I let you know that because we can take confidence in that. If God is good and nothing is amiss, we can be assured. We'll get back to that. So the God we love, or we profess to love, insists that all things be correct and suitable in every detail. So he created the Old Testament law and guideline for a specific purpose. So let's take a look at that law. Within the law, it was broken down into three types. First is ceremonial, governing the means by which God was to be worshipped and man was to be made right before him. Judicial, governing the action behavior of the nation of Israel and the moral, governing the principles God wanted all men to live by in relationship to himself and with one another. So here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a pivotal declaration that's the very basis of why he came and what were his intentions. Can we pull up back verse 17 and 18? Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets or the prophets. Do not 
I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, in the Greek it's iota, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The key word that is all will be fulfilled. So, why is that important? What does he really mean by that? As I shared earlier, the holiness of God is particular and requires particular means of satisfaction. Contrary to what the Pharisees and so many believed, it can only be satisfied that something is both has both internal and external purity. It's not just what we do on the outside. It's what's going on on the inside. It always has been and will be what's going on on the inside. And so the only one who could satisfy this is Jesus. He was the only one who was perfect and the only one who was able to fulfill that God in God's requirement. So how do you do this? First of all, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws which governed God's or Israel's form of worship. He said the ceremonial law would continue until all was accomplished. Jesus fulfilled it and accomplished all that it contained. All the various aspects of worship were types of what Christ would be and do. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Let's look at the next in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, 9 to 12. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, that's Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Do we understand what that means? He said once and for all that the repeated things that we have to do, it's not about that. Once and for all, past, present, future. All sins committed in the past, all sins currently we're doing, all sins we do in the future. He covers all of that once and for all. So our repentance is not about that we have to bounce back and forth like we lost salvation. We definitely lose a relationship. We definitely lose lose the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within us with our hard-heartedness if we're unrepentant. So repentance is critical. The first repentance of when we sacrifice is what brings us in relationship with Him. And daily repentance continually restores and renews that relationship. 
But his sacrifice, once we've apprehended it, once we've taken a hold of it, has been once and for all. Looking down in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 to 25, it tells us because of Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary and because he is the great priest, we can come to the house of God. Look at that. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of our together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So we've been washed with pure water. That pure water is actually the blood of Christ. Jesus washes us. So both the, tab- the tabernacle and the temple had a door, an altar and a laver, a laver being something that cleans you. And Jesus is the door. John 10:9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's also the altar. Hebrews ten twelve we've shared. But the, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then thirteen ten, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. But he himself cleanses us from sin, 1 John 1, 7. So he is the labor. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, in the, in the tabernacle, there were lamps that continually had to be refilled. But Jesus is the light of the world that shines eternally, John eight twelve. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So there was also bread, the show bread, that had to be continually replaced. But Jesus is the bread of life, John six thirty five, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. The incense had to be replenished, but Jesus' own prayers ascended for those that are his. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. They had a mercy seat. But Jesus is the one whom we receive mercy. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, as I mentioned, was about the judicial law. So Jesus fulfilled the judicial law, which were the special standards 
that separated the nation of Israel from all other nations and marked them as God's chosen people. So God created these standards because he wanted to create people that were different than everybody else. He wanted them to be a light to the Gentile world, to the rest of the world of what he was like. So he said, okay, these are the parameters we're going to go by. Okay? There were laws relating to agriculture, diet, dress, cleanliness, how they resolve disputes. Jesus kept every single law perfectly. He didn't keep the Pharisees' expansions of them, so the ones that I mentioned about the other things the Pharisees add. Okay? But he performed perfectly everything required by God in this area. Let's go to the last, the moral law. Jesus also fulfilled the moral law by his perfect righteousness. He did not keep the rabbinic traditions that expanded the common understanding of the law, like no work on the Sabbath, which detailed descriptions of what was and what was not work. So certain things you can't do, you can only walk certain distance, and but you can rescue your donkey if it falls into the well. They have all these specific laws. Jesus wasn't about all those additional things. But he was about those things, what God wanted to create a separate and holy people. We have to be careful in ourselves, the things that we tend to do, in setting our own rules and obligations. What we can or can't do on Sunday, what we can or can't touch, what we can or can't eat or drink. We can get caught up again in the same idea of rules and obligations. But Jesus perfectly obeyed all the directives God made through the law so that in Hebrews, look at Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's not somebody who didn't understand what it was to be a man. He was the perfect Adam, what Adam should have been. So as I share that Jesus did indeed fulfill the law and all of its requirements, let's go back to Matthew 5.18. For I surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So Jesus elevates the requirements. Look at 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he escalates it further. He says that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the religious elites. In, at the end, he even states at the Sermon of the Mount that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. 
So what does that mean? They're on our own. We're without hope. We don't have a chance. We don't have a single chance. We cannot make it no matter how hard we try. Every action, ritual, it will avail us not. Hebrews 10.4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Every sacrifice, everything that we do in our own strength, every right thing that we do is going to be insufficient. Or really filthy rags. The system of sacrifice was temporary and had to be repeated continuously. But thankfully, Christ came to die once and for all for us. Hebrews 10, 1 to 14. For the law, having a shadow, a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. So even though the law, again and again, even though they sacrificed and did those, it didn't make the Israelites perfect. Our actions on our own, no matter what we do in the right things, won't make us right with God. Won't make us perfect. Go on. For then they would not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The purpose of the law again and again, was to point our deficiency. The purpose of the law was to show how far short of the goal we are. As I said, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came to the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Go to the next in burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, you have no pleasure. God doesn't want our sacrifices and our offerings. In our own, God doesn't want our sacrifices and our offerings. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you didn't desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. Go on. I think you missed a What Christ won for all. Pardon me. So, God allowed the law to be there to show our need. God allowed the law to be there to show how far short we are. But Jesus came as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice to replace all that once and for all. And it says that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. So once God, Christ did that, he fulfilled all. 
So let's be clear that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice to fulfill the law, he is the promised Messiah, Matthew one twenty one. He perfectly kept the law and its commandments. None could find judgment against him, neither adversaries, John 8.46. Betrayer, Matthew 7.14. Accusers, Mark 14.55-59, or judge in Luke 23.4. He changes our hearts. Jesus changes our hearts. He changed my heart. From doing rituals, from doing things that I thought were right, he changed my heart. He told the law told us how to live, but left us powerless to do it. Jesus gives us a new heart when empowered by the Holy Spirit allows us victory over sin. Romans ten four and eight four. Let's turn to Philippians chapter three. Starting from verse 3. Paul recognized this the best. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. So Paul said, I did all of it. I was the perfect Pharisee. But his heart wasn't right. In verse 7 he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul got what Jesus has been trying to tell all of us. And if we turn to Luke Chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. This is the attitude. This is the choice before us. And also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus for himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes for all that I possess. 
And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. At this point in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus was addressing the pride in our hearts, the pride in the Pharisees, the pride that's within all of us, thinking that we can do things on our own, in our own way. And he's going to show in the rest of that sermon how humble we really are and certainly need to be. But there's hope. There is hope. We no longer have to strive in our own strength to reach heaven, to reach salvation, to have enlightenment, to have peace. God in his graciousness has condescended has come down to us to lift us up to him. He has given us the vehicle in the death of Jesus. And the power in his resurrection and within the Holy Spirit. We have to recognize our need. We really have to recognize our need and place ever more trust and reliance upon him. He's more than able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Father, that um, you have your way within us. We are so prone to rely on our own thinking and our own ways to achieve what we want or even what we think you want. Well, in your word, you have made things abundantly clear. A broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. You want a heart that's right before you, that is humble, that is poor in spirit, that's meek, that's gentle, that is peace-loving, peacemaking, willing to be wronged, as you were. So, Father, we pray within each person here, those who know you, that your light might shine through. And, Father, for those who don't know you, Father, that this be the day of their salvation. That they see their need, that no matter what they can do, life apart from you has really no meaning in eternity. None. It shall all perish. It shall dissipate, but life within you is joy now, here, and forevermore. Joys beyond our understanding. Because of who you are, you're that good, that amazing, that wonderful, that beautiful. We look forward to that day. Maranatha. Amen.